open to the book of Colossians as we walk through this very important and uh, hugely eye-opening passage. I don't know if you've ever really read or camped on this passage, but the more that I've really walked through this passage, the first time I, I, I walked through it, I, I had a lot of questions. There's a lot of stuff I didn't understand about it, but the more that I've grown, the more I've seen how key and important this passage is. Uh, and I, as I thought through this message, I was thinking about when I became a Christian. Now, like many of you, uh, I know some of us within this room grew up in church. Many did not, but I, I did grow up in church, and although I can't say that I really truly understood who Christ was until I was about eight years old. And when I was 18 years old, God really revealed himself to me. I had a lot of sin in my life. God totally convicted me of my sin and brought me to the saving knowledge of him. And I was full born. I mean, I wanted to follow Jesus with every aspect of my life. But I grew up in a community that was pretty religious uh, in that we had, it was a town of about 2,100 people and we had 28 churches. That's a lot of churches. Now, I'd say we had at least eight Mennonite churches because we had a significant population of Amish people. So the idea of following Jesus, there was a lot of different confusion. I mean, we had the different churches in town that uh, my, some of my friends went to. I mean, we had the Christian church. We had the Disciples of Christ. We had the Southern Baptist Church. We had the American Baptist Church. We had the uh, Evangelical Mennonite Church. We had the Beachy-Eye Church. I mean, we had church after church after church after church just in a small town. So in interacting with these people, and I, I, I'd interact with some of my friends, I, I wanted to know, what did it mean to follow Jesus? I wanted to follow Jesus. And so the person that I was gravitated toward the most was a classmate of mine who had, uh, was a Pentecostal apostolic. Now, uh, if you're not familiar with Pentecostal Apostolic, she wore a long jean skirt. She never wore any makeup whatsoever. She kept her hair very long. Uh, I went to a Pentecostal Apostolic wedding, and uh, they used to wear a poof on their hair. There was so much hairspray in the room that if you were to light a match, the whole place would go up. And that's just how this place was. And I, I remember seeing her, and she was always talking about Christ to me. Now, none of my other classmates really did, even the, the ones who grew up in an Amish environment. Um, and so I was drawn to her church because they were so overt in talking about Jesus. So I went to the worship service. And as I went to the worship service, I had never experienced a charismatic service before. Um, and it was eye-opening to me um, because suddenly this very reserved girl, I see dancing like crazy beast, I mean, beast mode dancing. I've never seen this before. Girl is shaking and back and forth. I've never seen her do this. And then people are walking around and arms are flailing. And I'm like, what just happened? Where did I enter into this environment right now? People got their hands in the air. People are shouting. People are singing. And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, okay, how, what, I, what is going on? And I, I didn't know exactly what to, what to think. I mean, perhaps you've been there. Anybody else been through this, some experience like that before? And you, you didn't know what it was like? And, and I wondered, is it the Spirit of God? Do these people have the Spirit of God in the church? That made me think, the church I grew up in, Jesus wasn't there. Because he was here. <laughs> and they had Jesus. And next thing I know is I'm, uh, they have me at the altar. And I don't remember volunteering for this. I just remember being at the altar, I'm on my knees, and people around me telling me to move my mouth. Tell me to move my mouth and, and shout. And, and I'm like, I, they're like, they kept talking about speaking in tongues. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on. People around me are muttering things I'd never heard before. And, and it, it made me stop and go, what is up with this? Um, and I, I remember hearing a professor of mine, Mike Rydelnik, he uh, was uh, sharing a story with me. He had a very similar experience where he had converted to Christianity from Judaism. 
And as he was uh, interacting and growing in Christ, his sister had gotten saved at that moment in time too. She'd become a Christian. And that she had become, um, uh, went into a, a charismatic or Pentecostal church. And so they were praying for him to receive the gift of tongues. And they were praying, he goes, we were praying for two or three hours one day. And finally, she's, she's, they're screaming really loud. I'm praying very, and he's very sincere in his prayer. And finally, his sister puts her hand up in the air and she goes, in the name of Jesus, Satan, come out of him. Smacks him on the back really hard. And he stands up and he goes, you people are crazy. I'm done. <laughs> and he walks out of the room. And he says, I, I'm done. Now, I, I, as I've interacted with, I'm not, this, this message isn't about spiritual gifts, okay? I, I do think they're, I'm not here to talk about the gifts. I've seen the abuse of the gifts. I've not seen the operation of the gifts as well, the so-called supernatural gifts. Um, I've not seen that. That's not my, my message or the point of my message today, okay? But my point is, is that as I got into this group, there was, they said that I needed to have Jesus and something else. They said I needed to speak in tongues in order to be a Christian, real follower of Jesus. They also said I needed to be baptized in Jesus' name as opposed to the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit to follow Jesus. And as I grew with this group, because I, I got real close with these individuals in this church, because they seemed to have Jesus there. They were more overt. They were outward. They were really jumping up and down in praise, and I was drawn to that. But as I got closer into it, there was a lot of stuff that they said I could and I couldn't do. They said I couldn't wear shorts ever. I couldn't listen to Christian, uh, certain types of Christian music. They said that I, I had to do all of these different things. And I went back and I, I started asking myself, is this what it means to be a real follower of Jesus? And I, 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 I wrestled with this for years because I want to understand not only who they were, but I want to understand all these different, different churches. And I saw some people said you had to be baptized. Other people said you had to speak in tongues. I had other people, you had to do this, have this Bible version. Or you had to go to this school and you had to do this. And it was Jesus plus something. It was always Jesus with something else added on to it. And I struggled for a long time until I, I, I saw what, what, what did the Word of God say? I wanted to see what the Word of God said. And I came across not just studying the Word of God, but the writings of, of my mentor, uh, that I've, it's no secret to anyone here, C.S. Lewis. And Lewis started talking about, he wrote a book uh, called Mere Christianity. It started off as broadcast talks during World War II meant to encourage troops. It was made into this book. But he says that his job, he felt, was like a guide. And he said, my point is to lead them into a hall out of which doors open into several rooms. And I'll share this quote with you. He says, If I can bring anyone into that hall, I have done what I attempted. But it is in the rooms, not the hall, that there are fires and chairs and meals. He said, My job is to introduce you to mere Christianity, not Jesus plus anything. I'm to bring you in the hall, and the denominations are the rooms off the sides. But I want to present to you mere Christianity. I want to remove from you Jesus plus anything and just get you to understand who Jesus is. See, we have a tendency in our churches to advocate Jesus plus something else. And fill in the blank. It could be anything. Jesus plus this school. Jesus plus this type of schooling for your children. Jesus plus this type of dress. Jesus plus this type of music. Jesus plus this type of, of seeking the spiritual gift. Jesus plus whatever. Fill in the blank. We have a tendency to do that. And Lewis said, no, no, no. My job is to bring you into this great hall that there are fires and chairs and meals. The hall is a place to wait in, a place from which to try the various doors, not a place to live. I'm to introduce you to Jesus, and then from there you go into wherever God has you to be. He said, for that purpose, the worst of the rooms, whichever that may be, I think preferable. He goes on. 
It is true that some people may find that they have to wait in the hall for a considerable time, while others feel certain almost at once which door they must knock at, which he equates to denominations, different types of churches. He said, I do not know why there is this difference, but I'm sure God keeps no one waiting unless he sees that it is good for him to wait. When you do get into the room, you will find that the long wait has done some kind of good, which you would not have had otherwise. But you must regard it as waiting, not as camping. You must keep on praying for light. And of course, even in the hall, you must begin trying to obey the rules which are common to the whole house. And above all, you must be asking which door is the true one, not which pleases you best by its point and paneling. Now, what's he saying? I mean, he's basically saying there, I want you to see who Jesus is first of all. I don't want to focus on anything else because churches have a tendency, and we do have a tendency to to mess it up. We want to add things to the faith rather than focus on Jesus himself. Now, today we're going to look at that because, see, Paul, this isn't a new concept. Paul understood this. Paul understood, even in that day, that there were people that wanted to add to Jesus. And he wants to to address that issue, to pull it all away, and to say, it's Jesus plus what equals what? He said, where does that lead? And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to see the danger that if we advocate Jesus plus something, and we're also going to see what we are to be and what the gospel is, as Paul shows us, that it's really Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But before we get into that, let's pause for a moment and pray and ask God's blessing on our message time together. Father, we ask you to speak to us, uh, reveal the idols of our heart, the things that have gotten in the way of seeing you in all of your glory. Uh, speak to us, shed your light, the light of your word upon our heart, reveal the sin of unbelief and confusion uh, that has kept us from really trusting fully in you. And may uh, we all grow in grace and in knowledge and power because of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's jump right into our text. We're going to go through this text rather quickly. We're going to start off in verse 11. Now, we're not going to hit all of this text exhaustively today. Matter of fact, we'll probably be camping on this passage for about three weeks. But I want to give you an overview. I want to highlight different parts of it uh, as Paul gives a, a, a huge uh, thought process of what the people were dealing with in Colossae at that time. He starts off in verse 11. So make sure you're looking at your Bibles with me. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 11. It's a page 984 in your pew Bible or 1252 if it's uh, one of the, the large print Bibles. He says, in him, he's talking about that's referring to Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, he starts off with the topic of circumcision. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant in ancient Judaism. It was established by God and given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 7. In 17, excuse me. It started with him and it was to be upon all his descendants. And it was to reveal the intimacy of their walk with God. So you have them, them doing the circumcision. And since Christianity, in its, uh, when it started off, was considered to be a sect of Judaism, there were many different people who had come from Judaism to a belief in Christ. So they see that these Jews have come to believe in Christ as, the, as God's Messiah, and they see Gentiles converting to Christianity. So their thought was, hey, it's great you have Jesus. We love you. Welcome to the church. By the way, did you know that, that Christianity is a part of Judaism? And a sign of being a Jew is getting circumcised. So you need to be circumcised in order to really be in a right relationship with God. 
And, and so Paul is deliberately uh, showing this and talking about this. Now, he's writing this about 12 years after, in about 62 AD, uh, 12 years after what took place in what uh, is known as the Jerusalem Council in AD 50. Because, see, this question had come up years before. Because Gentiles were converting to Christianity. The Jews were like, ah, we need to get these guys circumcised. And we need to go back to some of the, the, the Old Testament law. They need to be following the Old Testament law. we got 616 of them that they need to follow. And we need to bring them in. They need to follow all of the patterns of Judaism. And so the early church was confused. Do we follow the Old Testament? Or do, do we get circumcised? What do we do? So all of the churches had their, their ambassadors meet in Jerusalem to discuss this issue. And the church concluded that it wasn't necessary any longer. Because the point of the law was to draw people and show them to be as a guardian until they could see who Jesus was. That all of the promises of God find their fulfillment in Jesus. Everything about the Old Testament was to point to Jesus. That's why Jesus rebukes the Pharisees early on, and he says to them, you believe by looking in the scriptures that you will find eternal life, but it is they who testify about me. It was the point of the whole, entire Old Testament was to point to the coming of Christ. And he said, it's about me. It's about me. So they said, you don't need to be circumcised. You're to stay away from sexual morality and, and uh, food that was strangled or offered to idols. Other than that, do well. That was the conclusion of the Jerusalem Council. And that can be seen in the book of Acts. Now, Paul has to address this issue of circumcision time and time again. We see this in Romans chapter 2, verse 28 through 29. That's page 940 if you want to turn there with me, because Paul says, a Jew, you don't have to be circumcised to be a Jew. He says here, Romans 2, 28 through 29, page 940, he says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. You might be outwardly observant, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. But by the Spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. He's saying that it's not about that outward observant, observance. It's about an inward transformation. He says you don't need to add to your faith. You've already got Jesus. Now, he's saying there that, that if you add anything to Christ, then you don't really know who Christ is. See, that's the first point that I want us to convey today. I've got two major points. This is the first one. Jesus plus everything or anything equals nothing. If you add anything to Jesus, you don't really truly understand salvation and what he has done. If you add, it could be Bible versions. I mean, it could be anything that you want to add to the faith. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. For example, how many of you have ever heard of Martin Luther? Everybody heard of Martin Luther? Not Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther. Now, he predates Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, by, uh, or by about 400 years. Now, Martin Luther was a monk from Germany, and he was as devout as devout can be. I mean, this guy did everything that he possibly could to follow God. And he, he was constantly um, going to confession, even as a monk. He would go to confession so much, and he would confess his sins. He would literally walk out of the confessional, remember more, and then walk back in and confess more. The priest got so frustrated with him, they said, come back when you have something worthy to confess. Because he was confessing all the time. Every thought that occurred into his mind, he confessed, he confessed. And he was trying to gain righteousness in the sight of God. So much so that he went to Rome. And in Rome, he encountered what is popularly known as the Scala Sanctum. Anybody know what the Scala Sanctum is? 
These are what are known as the holy stairs, the holy stairs. And, and tradition dictates that the stairs that Pilate issued his edict for Jesus' crucifixion were miraculously moved to Rome. Okay? And then penitents, people who really wanted to be devout to God, would crawl up these stairs on their knees. And they did so so much that the authorities there tried to make it a little bit more, a little better for them, so they put down wood planks. But so many people kept coming and crawling up these stairs. They would get bloody and things like that. They would wear out the boards. They'd have to be replaced all the time. And these individuals would do that because they thought they were going to get God's approval, that they could work their way to God. They would be more blessed of God. They would have a greater standing in the sight of God than Joe Schmo sitting over here just doing his job. And so Luther was doing this, and he was trying to gain favor in the sight of God. But he realized, the more that he went on, that the just shall live by faith. It's by faith alone. That it's not by works. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and not of works, lest no man should boast. Because we have this tendency to think of ourselves more blessed if we do this or do that. And, he, and Paul is addressing this. He's saying, Jesus plus everything or anything equals nothing. You add anything to Christ, then you really don't have Christ. His death was so amazing and so sufficient in the sight of God that it's worthy of providing our entire salvation. But see, many people, we have a tendency to do this. We want to add to our salvation. or Actually, we want to do things that we think will merit our salvation. For example, what if we add to Jesus the right practices and procedures? See, circumcision was a practice or a procedure that people went through in order to be more godly. I mean, you see that people would do this. Origen, the great theologian, he heard that it was people made, were made eunuchs for the kingdom of God, so he castrated himself in order to be more worthy in God's sight. Do those things save us? Do they make us more worthy in God's sight? See, what if we add to God the right practices and procedures? And we can do this with anything, by the way. I see people do this with baptism. I had a young man. He was 16 years old. He was about six foot three, six foot four, over 300 pounds, huge kid. Um, and he, uh, he, he comes to me and he says, I want to be baptized. It was more like this. I want to be baptized. Okay. Okay, sir. I, uh, I baptize you. But I, I said, I need to know about your testimony. I need to know about how you came to know Christ. And he told me a story about when he was growing up at a church in the south side of Chicago. He had heard the message of Christ. He responded to it on a Sunday morning. Um, and they told him to come uh, later that afternoon. And they're going to baptize him right away. So he shows up at the service. And the water is, and I'm not joking, blood red. They put food dye in the water tank to make it seem like he was being baptized in the blood of Jesus. Okay? So he goes and he gets baptized and he goes, I'm cleansed from my sin. And he comes to me and he goes, but I've sinned since then. I want to be baptized again. I'm like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You don't need to be baptized again. If you truly know who Christ is, baptism is a one-time thing, not an overtime thing, unless you really didn't understand. He goes, no, I want to be clean. Wait, what? The more that I talked to him, the more that I understood, he didn't understand what salvation meant. He thought that baptism literally cleansed him in the sight of God. And he demanded to be baptized. And I said, no. I said, I'm sorry, you're just not there yet. Let's talk more. Let's wait some more time. So that was at the beginning of the week. He shows up on Sunday and demands to be baptized. He gets right in my face and he says, I demand to be baptized, like physically intimidating me. And I'm like, obviously, if you're getting ready to try to beat me up, I'm not going to baptize you because you really don't get it yet. But see, for him, he thought 
that that would gain him favor in the sight of God if he did it. So it's, it's not about our practices and procedures. Yes, we are to have the right practices and procedures, but that's not what saves us. That's not what saves us. Well, what if we add something else? What if we add the right precepts and preferences? Precepts and preferences. Notice verse 22. Paul writes, referring to the things that all perish as they are used according to their human precepts and teachings. Now, the word here for teaching refers to doctrine, and they're prefaced by the word human, which is translated men. It's the teachings of men. What if we add these great teachings of men, of pastors, of leaders? What if we add that? What if we do everything that John Piper or John MacArthur would say? Surely if I have a MacArthur study Bible, I am blessed in the sight of God. Or maybe if I use the 1611 King James Version, the same version that Paul used, I will be blessed in the sight of God. Now there are some that advocate that. Now I'm not, I'm not disregarding it. It's a translation that's been around 400 years. It's got to be pretty good the last 400 years. But I'm saying it's people that look for that as a means of righteousness. That it, look at it as a means of being saved. Or maybe it's, maybe it's, and I've seen this in some churches, maybe if the girls all wore culottes, how about that? I've seen that before. Have you ever seen that? Or, or that you don't wear this makeup, or if you wear this earring, then that's bad. Wow. I've seen that before. Is that what saves a person? No. It comes back to the heart. It's not about the precepts and preferences. Well, what if we were add to our faith pains and punishments? Pains and punishments. Look at verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. That's self-willed, literally self-willed religion. It's really will worship, exalting the worshiper at God's expense. And what if we put great punishment upon ourselves? Or this asceticism refers to self-abasement. It's literally referring to false humility, that they're going through it to get other people to look at them, to, be, uh, to make sure that they are, in essence, saving themselves. The word severity indicates a severe form of self-control. The idea of this is that they are causing themselves pain and punishing themselves to gain God's favor or to curb sin. We've seen that before. Anybody ever heard of Opus Dei? It's an extreme sect of Catholicism where the adherents to it take a flagellum and they whip themselves, try to make up the, the uh, sufferings of Christ. They will beat themselves. I've seen different people, uh, you can see it within Shia Islam, where they will crawl great distances in order to gain the favor of Allah. You see it within Hinduism, where they will adopt extreme forms of fasting or Buddhism. Uh, you even see where different people would even light themselves on fire thinking that they would uh, gain uh, favor from deity or get good karma or whatever it might be. Or even in Islam, in our time and, a- time and age, where people will blow themselves up to be accepted by Allah. See, that's what it's talking about here. And you know, we can do that as followers of Jesus. Paul even talks about this in 1 Corinthians. He says, if I even surrender myself to the flames, but have not love, means nothing. It's the understanding of it's not going to gain God's favor. It's about following him in love. Now, Tim Keller put it this way. Uh, he says, religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Relationship says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. It's a simple way to put it. Religion is, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. That I'm going to gain God's favor. 
The relationship says you're already accepted in Christ. Now you want to obey out of a loving relationship, not to gain his favor. See, there's a big difference there between religion and relationship. And Paul is saying Jesus plus anything else is, equals nothing. But what if we add such stuff as peripheral issues and past experiences? Peripheral issue. What's a peripheral issue? Things that are nice to know, but really have no effect on our salvation. Look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. So these are people who are insisting on doing one thing. You need to worship angels. You need to do this. Now, we could fill in the blank in a lot of different ways. It could be our preferences. It could be peripheral issues. It could be things that are important, but really don't have any effect on our salvation. And I've seen people do this. Like, for example, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick on one right now. Schooling. How do you school your kids? Now, there's three different ways that you can school your kids. Homeschool, Christian school, and public school. Those are all, all three. I've seen all three succeed, and I've seen all three fail. But I've heard some people, I remember interacting uh, with a, 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 my dental hygienist, and she was talking to me. She found out I was a pastor. She started talking to me about her kids and how grieved she was at her kids and what's something she'd been taught. And I, and I said, well, what was it? She said, I was told that if I homeschool my kids, basically they'll get into heaven. That if I did what God wanted to do, and that was homeschool my kids, then they would be in Jesus. And they're, they're completely rebelling right now. I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait. What? She said, if I, I was told if I did this, they would go toward, you know, basically, they would, I would be blessed. They would not be, they would be removed from the negative influences of the world. I would be the one educating them, and they'd be saved. Now, I have not a problem with homeschooling, but you can do it wrong. You can do homeschooling right, you can do it wrong. You can do that with Christian school. If you were relying on anybody else to really disciple your kids, that's a problem. You need to be the primary disciple. It doesn't mean that other people can't speak into their lives. I mean, we had some folks here that took another peripheral issue. I remember when I first came here, they said, we do everything together as a family. I'm like, that's great. They said, no, we do everything together as a family. And I went, you know, what you talking about, Willis? <laughs> what do you mean by that? Um, and they said, we, we don't do any Sunday school separated. We believe in being family together all the time. I'm like, that's fine. I, 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 but I, I think you're, you're misunderstanding the scripture. That doesn't mean that other people can't speak truth into their life. But see, they made a peripheral issue, and they were making that a main issue, and they wanted everybody to be exactly like that. And again, I don't have a problem with being together as a family. I have a problem when, when people try to make that as a means of righteousness in the sight of God. That's the problem that I have. And that can be with schooling. That can be with anything. These are peripheral issues. Whether it means, it can mean your, your mode of baptism. Now, I, I have, we have our convictions on what baptism is, what it's not. But it's when people say that that saves you. I got issue. Or past experiences. Here, they're going into detail about visions. When I have people come to me and they say, well, I experienced God in this way, which is in direct contradiction to the Word of God. And they say, my experience trumps the Scripture. And I went, that's a problem. Scripture doesn't trump. I mean, Scripture trumps experience every single time. Every experience we have must be run through the grid of Scripture. Because if, if experience becomes the determining factor in everything that we do and everything that we believe, then what regulates one person's experience when it's up against another person's experience? There is no determining factor that can say what is right or wrong. If it's just every person for themselves, it's my experience versus yours. So it has to be, we have to have a true north, a constant, which is the word of God. It's not our, 
our past experiences. And I've had other people say, basically, they say that they are saved in the sight of God and blessed in the sight of God because of past times of service and ministry. I've had people say, they come to me and they're like, well, I used to be such and such a teacher. I did it for 30 years. I don't nearly need to go to church now. I went, you have been, I I said, I feel for you because you've done ministry for 30 years and you still yet don't really know who Jesus is. Because that's not the gospel. It's not about what you did a long time ago. It's about trusting and putting your complete hope and trust in him and that is seen in a life that has changed for his glory. Now, these aren't the only things that people believe in. Um, I'm going to add one more because it's not in our text, but I see it in our culture and in many of our churches. What about if we have the right politics and patriotism? There's a pastor in the, in the area. I'm not going to name him. He has a local affiliate radio show. And in this, uh, he's got a pretty large church. And uh, as a staff one time, we, we listened to a sermon of his. And he started off reading from the book of Romans. It's a great text. Started off well. And he immediately trans, trans, uh, turns when he jumps out after he gets done reading the text. And he, he makes that focus of that verse on American patriotism. And he puts God and country together. And it, basically, he's uniting Christ and the U.S. of A. Now, I have a real problem with that. Because my God is not just the, the God of, of, of this city or this country. He's the God of the world. And I am not an American Christian. I'm a Christian American. Because my, my identity with Christ comes first. Now, I'm not against patriotism. And I'm not against people participating within politics whatsoever. As Christians, we are... Uh, given the responsibility of inhibiting or stopping uh, evil and influencing and promoting that which is good. And we have a political forum in which we can do that. However, it's when that becomes an end of themselves and again, a means of righteousness in the sight of God. And that can take away from the true gospel. You know, when you go into different countries and they take Bible versions with them, uh, English versions, do you know which versions they ask not to be taken? American Standard. Why? Because it has American in it. They look for something new international because they want to make sure you're not just conveying American, being an American with the gospel of Christ. Because Christ is greater than being an American. And again, it's great to be an American. I'm, I'm, I'm very glad to be where I am and born where I am and being the beneficiary and I love my country. And I, I'm grateful for that. But we have to make sure that we can't see that as a means of righteousness, our patriotism but we look back at Christ and him alone, first and foremost of all. Now, if we continue to do all these things, and we advocate one way or another, and we add anything to Jesus, then we will soon find that we are in, in, in prison to uh, our sin, and we have no power to stop sinning. See, that's what he says here. None of these things have the power to stop the indulgence of the flesh. Whether or not you homeschool, Christian school, or public school, and it is a conviction that every family has to go through, and it, might, and it does differ between children, okay? But don't think that that itself is going to stop them from sinning. I've seen some Christian kids go into public schools and soar and are a great light to Christ, yet I've seen others who are wilt under the pressure and turn away from God to sin. And I've seen homeschoolers, though, come out completely nuts. I've seen the same with Christian schoolers. Again, It's about where do you do in the heart. Don't think there's that formula there. Because as Paul says here, they don't have the ability to stop the indulgence of the flesh. 
There's no honor in it. There's no ability to really stop that. And it's what it is, it promotes a form of legalism in our lives, and we can't see who Jesus is. Do you know, Jesus had his biggest warnings toward legalists. To those that thought they had a corner on the market of truth, he's continually chastising them because they relied on the rules and not the relationship. And so we have to come back to that relationship not to say we abandon the rules, but it's about not outward observance, but inward obedience. Not outward observance, but inward obedience. It's about getting the heart. It always comes back to the heart. Look at verse 3 with me, 13. Or wait a second, Ramon, before we go there. I had this great quote. Um, you know, I mentioned religion says I obey, therefore I'm accepted, while relationship says I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Religion does imprison us. And Tony Evans, I like how he described religion. He said it's like a baby's pacifier. We can keep on sucking on it, but it doesn't give us the satisfaction that we work so hard for. So you can keep doing and doing and doing, but it doesn't give you the satisfaction. It comes back to that relationship that God wants us to have. Let's look at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, meaning you really didn't have that relationship with God, you were completely dead to God. God made alive. God gave you life together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. We're going to really unpack this next week. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. See, everything goes back to Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. It all goes back to what happened on the cross, that Jesus' death was sufficient in and of itself. That's what gets you points in the sight of God because God takes your sin and appropriates it to Jesus' account and takes Jesus' righteousness and appropriates that to your account. And what does that mean? It means that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing else. It is by faith alone in him. It is Jesus and what he has done. Jesus plus nothing else. It doesn't matter about what education that you have. It doesn't matter whether or not you're an American. It doesn't matter whether, what Bible version you read. He's saying Jesus plus nothing. That is what is sal- salvific. Now, I'm not saying those other issues aren't important. They are. What I'm saying is, is don't let that, though, be the means by which you think you are saved. They are peripheral issues. Or we got to remember, and I like how one pastor put it, remember to keep the main thing the main thing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. What does it mean to have Jesus plus nothing? Surely must be something more we have to do. Yeah, we're to repent and believe. And I had one man we were talking to, and I remember uh, not just this young man, but I had it brought, the same concept this young man had brought to me. He said, repentance is a work. That's something you have to do, right? If I have to repent, then that's a work in the sight of God. Then it's Jesus plus my repentance equals everything. So is repentance then a work? And I'd heard this thought before. Actually, when I was a new believer, I was interviewing a Muslim imam. And I said, we are saved by faith and faith alone. And he said, what do you have to do? I said, repent and believe. He goes, repentance is a work. You have to be saved by works just like me. I thought of that. And then, of course, I came across my mentor, once again, C.S. Lewis. And Lewis described it this way. He said, remember this repentance, this willing submission to humiliation and a kind of death is not something God demands of you before he will take you back and which he could let you, loose, uh, let you off of it if he chose. It is simply a description of what going back to him is like. 
See that? He's like saying it's not a work. It's just simply what going back to him looks like. If you're repenting, it's not a work in the sight of God. It's simply what, what following him looks like. He did it. You're surrendering. This is what repentance is. It's not a work in the sight of God. If you ask God to take you back without it, you're really asking him to let you go back without going back. It cannot happen. See, repentance is simply what going to God looks like. We believe in Christ. We surrender our arms. That's another way he described it. He said it's, it's a war. And it's believing in him and saying, I have to surrender. Surrender in the sight of God. It's not a work. It's just simply what it looks like to believe. See, repentance is believing and expressing that belief in action. We believe in Christ. Look at verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. See, it's by our faith. Faith in action. By our trust in him that God even gives us, regenerates us to believe in that. By re- we believe. That is what it, this involves. It involves faith in the finished work of Christ. That's the next point. See, what does Jesus plus nothing equals everything look like? It involves faith in the finished work of Christ. That you're trusting in him and in him alone, what he did on the cross. It all goes back to the cross. It is about his death, burial, and resurrection. And it's that moment on the cross when he satisfied the wrath of God, where he defeated the powers of darkness, which is seen and validated by his resurrection from the dead. We can see this earliest expression of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 through 5, on page 961, if you want to turn there. If not, that's okay. Just listen in. Paul says, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So he's saying there that he died, he was buried, and he rose again. It all goes back to that. It all goes back to the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, salvation was done. We can no longer try to pay God back. We can't pay him back. We'll never be able to pay him back. So we shouldn't even try. See, God takes our not working to gain salvation pretty seriously. He wants us to rest and abide in that salvation. See, it might seem like a nuance, but it's a very important one to get an understanding of what God means by that. See, remember our salvation comes from God's unmerited favor and Him forgiving our sins. It's, an, it's a based on His unmerited favor. We can't earn it. You know, what's the difference between grace and mercy? We've highlighted this different times. See, grace is giving you what you did not earn. Mercy, or, or basically, grace is giving you what you did not deserve. Mercy is withholding what you did deserve. Grace is giving you what you didn't deserve. You did not deserve God's salvation. I don't care how good you were. You weren't good enough. No one was good enough in the sight of God. None of us were. But God yet still loved us that he would lavish his mercy and his grace and see us as loving individuals. That he wouldn't see us in the midst of our sin and leave us there. That he would come to die on our behalf. That he would exhibit this love to us in this very profound way. And he would no longer hold your sin against you. Do you know that? He doesn't hold your sin against you any longer. That your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven in and of Christ. Did you know that the devil is called the accuser of the brethren? And in the book of uh, Zechariah, if I remember right, there's this picture where that title is given, where Joshua the high priest is wearing these nasty uh, garments, like in essence filled with excrement. 
and Satan is before the throne of God, and he's accusing Joshua. And it says that God reaches out, and God cleanses him and puts on new garments. It makes him white as snow. See, Satan will try to always bring up your past in your life. He will throw it in your face. He will constantly remind you of your sins. And he will do that day and night. He is the accuser of the brethren. But see, Christ, through Christ, there is now no condemnation. There's no room for it anymore. Because Jesus bore our shame. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we could be saved and be made into the very the picture and righteousness of God. We were crucified with him. Not because of anything that we have done. That we have unmerited favor and now we have forgiveness in the very sight of God. Now this faith though needs to be nourished. And it is nourished in the fellowship of the faithful is nourished in the fellowship of the faithful. Look at verse 19. And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, talking about the body of Christ. The head is the Christ. He is the head of this church, which is known as the body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. God grows it, but he grows our faith when we are in fellowship with one another. I like how C.J. Mahaney put it. He said this, the personal desolation of, Uh, Christ is experiencing on the cross is what you and I should be experiencing. But instead, Jesus is bearing it and bearing it all alone. Why alone? He's alone so that we might never be alone. We don't need to be alone. That God sets the lonely in families. He puts us together. And what happens when we come together? We help one another. That's what we're supposed to do. But what inevitably happens when any group of sinners gets together? There's going to be conflict misunderstanding. Our feelings are going to be hurt. But you know, that's the beauty of the church in that we are to start, that's a means by which we are to grow in Christ-likeness. See, people that want to remove themselves from that are removing themselves from truly understanding and experiencing God's sanctification. Because sanctification occurs within community, not in isolation. And it's through the conflicts that we have with other people that we're here to grow in intimacy, that we understand forgiveness, that we can issue forgiveness that we can understand and communicate God's message of grace to us. When we focus so much on the experience of God to the detriment of having community with other believers and and who are all trying to seek God together, we are doing an injustice to our faith. Because our faith is nourished. Our our issues and, and struggles are brought forth within this body. They're brought to the surface that we can help work through them. That's why we're not to to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some. But Hebrews says that we'll do it more and more as we see the day approaching. You need the church. You need other people in your life to speak truth into your your personal life, into your marriage, to learn and grow and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I learn about Jesus by interacting with you. I learn what God is doing in your life. I step on toes, but I have an opportunity to ask for forgiveness because I know that God wants me to ask for forgiveness because he has forgiven me and I can forgive other peoples because Christ has forgiven me. But that can't be done by yourself. It has to be within community. That's what he's saying there. We can't be disconnected from the head. That if we're to grow and understand with this Jesus plus nothing equals everything, then part of that occurs and is nourished within the fellowship of the faithful. Now, I want to conclude with a couple of thoughts here before we get to our last point. In our family, I, I still don't think we have a hard time understanding what it means to be religious versus relationship. I, th- I still think we lean toward religion. If we're honest with ourselves, we lean toward religion than we do with relationship. We want a set of rules. 
of what is in play and out of play. And then we feel that if we can follow those rules, then we'll be all right in the sight of God. But a relationship is a lot more difficult to do that. Even in relationship, there are rules, but you can try to follow those rules, and if your heart's not in it, it's not right. And so I, was, I was, came across this little illustration. It's about doing dishes. How many of you do dishes in your family? Yeah, I do the dishes in my house most times. But one of the things I hate, I hate leaving dishes out. Anybody else like that? I, I mean, I had a roommate, by the way, he, when I was in college, he would leave the dishes for months. And we would get so angry, we'd shove them in the shower or his bed. Um, he's like, you got to do his dishes. I hate leaving dishes overnight. Why? Because they get so hard to clean. You got to really scrub them. So what do you do? Uh, what I do is I, if I can't fit them in the dishwasher, you do what? You soak them, right? You put some hot water in there. You put some, some dishwater detergent in there, and you let them soak. Now, it's interesting. Tony Evans says this. He goes, that's what abiding does for the Christian. We're much easier to clean up when we've been hanging out or soaking in the right environment. It's a bit like religion versus relationship. Religion says, scrape off the dirt first. It tells us to apply elbow grease to fix a problem. Relationship says, soak. Just sit in the hot water for a while. Abiding will set you free. See, that's what relationship is. Staying connected is being abiding in Christ. And when we connected with the body of believers, we're going to grow. It's going to take time. And everything we want today is instantaneous. I mean, do you want something instantaneous? I mean, I wish I could do the drive through at the DMV. I hate waiting in line at the DMV. I want, I mean, I like everything instantaneous. But see, sanctification doesn't work that way. No matter how much we try to fix it up, it doesn't work that way. So we have to learn to abide that we might be truly set free connected and understand this relationship and what Christ has done for us. And when we truly understand what Christ has done for us, and we truly understand what this relationship is and what God has done, then we will discover that God has given us the power to fight the flesh. Remember what we just saw in there, that this, the, the other things to do them has no means of really truly fighting the flesh because they're looking at outward behavior, not inward transformation. Outward conformity not inward transformation. Paul condemns the things they were trusting in in verse 23 as being unable to help them fight the flesh, but when we truly understand the cross, we can fight the flesh. Paul put it this way in Galatians chapter 5, verse 12 through 15. It's page 975. He says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor the uncircumcision, but a new creation. John Owen, great theologian, British theologian, put it this way. When someone sets his affections excuse me, upon the cross and the love of Christ, he crucifies the world as a dead and undesirable thing. The baits of sin lose their attraction, disappear. Fill your affections, your attitudes, your heart, what you long for with the cross of Christ, and you will find no room for sin. See, it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You cannot add to your salvation. It was complete in and through Christ, death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. And if we truly believe, if we place our faith in Christ and trust in him and him alone, 
we will discover a new freedom beyond what anything we've ever experienced before. Have you trusted in him and him alone? Have you been trying to trust in your work, in the sight of God, maybe your schooling, maybe it was in the, the following this Bible version or singing this type of music or whatever it might be? We can have our preferences. That's okay. It's when we exalt our preferences to be of primary importance, to purchase our salvation. And only Christ can purchase that. We're to trust and abide in that truth for his glory and our joy. That's, Christ still saves. He's still working in people's lives. That whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. He came to set us free from the, the constraints of the law, of trying to work our way to God, showing us that we already have favor in and through Christ. It's as simple as that. The just shall live by faith. Put your faith in Christ. Trust in him. And he will save you and free you in ways beyond your imagination. Let's pray. Father, this is a very hard truth. It so, can be so confusing and unsettling, especially for those of us who have been trusting in those, in those external things. Lord, when we have outward observance, may we have inward transformation. May that precede our outward observance. Lord, may we, we go and do and seek to be obedient. May we do so knowing that we've been already accepted, not to get accepted in the sight of God. May we rest in the work of our Savior and what He has done on the cross for, on our behalf. May we truly live in the freedom that the Son of God has purchased to set us free with. Because we know, Lord, that when we have the Son, the Son sets us free and we are free indeed. Lord, may we be truly free. And let freedom ring. The spiritual freedom that you have given your son to die to make that truth alive in our lives. May we live in the hope and reality of that, knowing that we have been set free. And now what we do is live by faith, following your son, knowing that he has given us true, abiding and everlasting life and satisfaction. So Lord, please glorify your name in our midst. Grow us for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.